and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where I, along with a cast of fellow book and movie nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. A couple of warnings real fast. Yes, there will be some barnyard language. Yes, we will do all the spoiler things. We want to be able to talk in depth about the endings, so proceed with caution. You can listen to all of our past episodes if you go to kmmamedia.com, click on the Pages and Popcorn podcast link, and see a back catalog of all of our episodes. One last thing, if you want to support the show, of course, there's Patreon and buy us a coffee. Or you can do the best thing of all, rate and review us and tell your friends to listen. The more listens we get, the more likely I am to keep making shows. Okay, that about sums up the intro. Thank you once again for joining us on today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. First we read the book. Yeah, yeah. Then it's movie time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's time to talk. Yeah, yeah. And you know we're feeling fine. Cause it's pages and popcorn. It's pages and popcorn. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn podcast. Today, Matthew and I will be discussing the 2014 novel, The Black-Eyed Blonde by John Banville, writing as Benjamin Black which was later turned into the 2022 neo-noir film directed by Neil Jordan entitled Marlowe. So real quick, before we get into the recap, Matthew has been here before. We talked about The Big Sleep because Matthew is into... Hard-boiled detective story. It's a subgenre of the hard-boiled crime story, with uh, noir being the other subgenre of it. Indeed, and this is definitely these are genres that you enjoy and yes. read quite a bit of. And I think at one point you might have told me that Raymond Chandler was one of your favorite authors. Yes. Okay, so Raymond Chandler is obviously no longer with us. But he left some notes behind, and in one of his notebooks was a scribbled-down potential title for a book called The Black-Eyed Blonde. But am I correct in thinking that, well, I think I'm correct because I think you already told me this, that there was no actual outline or idea, it was just the title, correct? That's my understanding, yeah. Um, and I believe that's what it says at the author's note at the end of the uh, book that we read. Uh Chandler had been working on another uh, Philip Marlowe novel when he died called Poodle Springs, but he didn't complete it. A later author later did complete it, but it was not John Banville. Okay. So the character of Philip Marlowe kind of has transcended past Chandler and become a character that has been written about by various other authors, including John Banville, a.k.a. Benjamin Black, and today's book, like I said, published in 2014, made into the 2022 movie. And here is the exciting recap. 
Philip Marlowe is a private investigator in LA. He has few friends and no long-term lovers, but he is a man of his word. He's also barely scraping by. He likes to drink. He likes to smoke. He likes to puzzle out the mysteries of his clients. He once helped a guy fake his own death to get away from some bad dudes, and he has a soft spot for pretty women. One day, a beautiful woman enters his office, asking him to find her ex-boyfriend. This is Claire Cavendish. She is rich, classy, and oh yeah, beautiful. Like, really, really beautiful. Marlowe starts to fall for her lickety-split. He also starts to get the sense that she isn't telling him everything. But again, she's beautiful. He'll take the case. He starts digging around and quickly finds out that the boyfriend in question was kind of a sleazeball agent dude named Nico. And Nico is dead. He died in a hit and run outside of the fancy Kahula Club a few months back. Marlo goes to tell Claire, beautiful, beautiful Claire, and she's all like, oh yeah, well, I know he's dead. I was there the night he died. But I saw him in San Francisco a few weeks ago, so I want to know if he faked his death and why. Also, we are at her huge, huge house because her mom is hella rich from the perfume racket, apparently. Lots of money to be made in perfume. Marlo meets her shifty, spoiled little brother and her husband, Richard, who seems rather useless as well. Richard doesn't buy the whole story that Claire cooks up that she'd hired Marlo to find a necklace, but he doesn't really push the issue either. Marlo is even more suspicious, but okay, she is very beautiful. He is going to solve this mystery. He goes to Nico's house and, and finds out from a neighbor that two Mexican henchman types have also been nosing around. He loops his frenemies, the cops, in on his investigation and keeps poking about. He goes to the club where Nico was hit and runned over. There, a few interesting things happen. He sees a lady he almost recognizes. He learns that the staff is a lot of wayward men with a variety of developmental issues or mental illnesses that the big boss gives work to as some sort of charity program. And he meets the manager, not the big box, but more of a swanky mid-level boss named Hanson who gives him a tour and a song and a dance but sticks to the story that he saw the body it was Nico and that's the end. Nico's sister by the way also identified the body the next day. Marlo then meets up with Claire's mom for a drink. She kind of warns him off the case also does not buy the necklace story. She's very fat. She eats cake. He feels sorry for her. That's about that. Marlo uses his connections to arrange a meeting with the starlet that Nico was the agent for. She pretty much knows nothing, but it confirms to Marlo that Claire and Nico were really, really, really mismatched. Again, Claire is beautiful. He heads back to Nico's house and breaks in to poke around. He is caught by a lady. It's the lady from the club. It's Nico's sister, Lynn. He tries to hide why he's there, but she isn't buying his lies. They start to have a drink and talk when the two Mexican thugs that Marlo had heard about come barging in pistol whip Marlo and kidnap Lynn. When he wakes up, Marlo goes home. He washes up, has a drink, and finally calls the cop about the kidnapping. The cops are not overly sympathetic to him, but promise to try to track down the kidnappers. One of the cops on the case is Bernie, who really has it in for Marlo. He harangues Marlo a bit and is still salty about that Terry business. What Terry business, you might wonder? Oh, just that fake death, that get away from the stuff, favor to a friend Terry business. Bernie thinks Marlo is pretty scummy. And you know what? He's kind of right. But I digress. Bernie leaves. Claire shows up. They have a drink. She dodges his questions. They sleep together. She's very, very pretty. Marlo picks a fight. She leaves in a huff. Then Bernie calls. They have found Lynn's body. 
At the crime scene, we are told that Lynn was raped and tortured before she was eventually killed. Marlo is upset by this, and the cops are still suspicious of him. Marlo knows that they won't have any luck in finding the Mexican murderers, and they probably won't look all that hard as Lynn was, you know, a dancer and not a big shot like Claire. He does feel bad enough, though, that he goes to her funeral, which is pretty empty. Right after that, Marlo is approached by a big-time Vegas gangster who knows that he's looking for Nico and... He really wants to know what Marlo knows and is apparently also looking for Nico. Marlo starts to wonder whose body was used in the identification since apparently no one seems to think it was actually Nico. Not Claire, not Lynn, not this gangster. Anyway, Marlo has hit a dead end, but this is a novel after all. So after he lays about smoking and thinking about his life for a while, there's another plot point, Claire calls. Her brother has OD'd on heroin and she needs help. Marlo goes to check it out, confirms that it is indeed a heroin OD. But Rhett, the brother, isn't quite dead yet. So Marlo calls in a favor with a doctor that he knows who shows up, gives Rhett some adrenaline, and bails, as does Marlo. The next day, he goes back to the club, and he talks to Hanson, the manager, again. This time, it isn't tea that Hanson pours him, but what the dime store novels call a Mickey, as in Marlo is drugged, and he wakes up tied to a chair next to a swimming pool, also next to Mexicans, who are also tied up. One is already dead. The other's about to die because the club's butler is actually a dude with a special set of skills. It is time to meet the big boss, an Englishman named Canning. Turns out Canning is the father of Nico and Lynn, and he's also looking for Nico, but only sort of kind of, and he isn't overly upset about the death of his, quote, tramp daughter, his words, not mine. It seems to be all about Nico, and killing the Mexicans was for info. The butler turned brutal enforcer, and Hanson are going to torture and then kill Marlo if he doesn't spill the beans about where Nico is and who hired him, but Marlo obviously doesn't know where Nico is, and he's not going to tell. They almost drown him twice, but he still won't talk. Then he gets the drop on them, and he shoots the butler man in the knee, gets Canning and Hanson disarmed, and gets him in the pool, and makes a clean getaway. This time, he calls the cops right away, and despite that Canning has fled the country, Hansen is arrested and spills the deal about how the Mexicans are dead. And, oh, yes, there's this very special place on the club grounds where they bury the bodies. Bernie, cop Bernie, is pretty sure that Marlo knows more than he's saying. And Marlo, bless his heart, seems to really think that this case of Nico and the murder of Lynn aren't overly connected. Marlo then gets super drunk and then gets a middle-of-the-night phone call that Hansen has killed himself in his cell. So Marlo spends some time thinking about everything. And then he has lunch with Claire, where he tries to get her to tell him whatever it is that she's been hiding this whole time. But she won't. Oh yes, she's very, very pretty. So that's it. Marlo's annoyed. He's bored now and just sits around for a while waiting. And then he gets another phone call. And it's Nico. Yep, Nico in the flesh. Nico's for sure not dead and he wants to meet. So they do. Nico has a briefcase that Marlo recognizes. But don't worry, it for sure has not been mentioned in this book up until now. So there you go. This briefcase is full of heroin. See, he was running drugs for the gangster. He decided to take fake his own death and run away with it and sell it, and live happily ever after. But the guy who was going to buy it from him died, so he basically had faked his own death for nothing, and now everyone is looking for him, so could Marlo please take the heroin back to the gangster while Nico runs away for real to South America? Cool? Cool. Oh no, yeah, Claire was never his girlfriend. Duh. Marlo takes the heroin, gets it to a safe place, mails the key to the cops, then calls Claire, tells her that to get him there ASAP. There's very little chance that the reader knows who he is, but all is revealed when Marlo goes to her house and ta-da, Terry, that fake suicide dude is there. Turns out Claire loves him and he was on the hook for the drugs that Nico stole or something. Honestly, my eyes are glazing at this point. Anyway, they're all smug because they got away with it. And then Rhett, Claire's addict brother, shows up and is like, hey, Terry, it's all your fault. You got me hooked on drugs. And then he straight up shoots Terry in the head. And that's pretty much the end. Claire is sad, her mom is sad, her brother's going to jail, 
Terry is really dead this time. That briefcase was apparently a big deal in a different book. Nico is off being a gigolo in South America. Marlo never really got paid, and he's heartbroken because Claire doesn't love him. By the way, she's really, really pretty. The end. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. I mean, as most people who listen to this podcast know, I usually crib quite heavily from like Wikipedia and other sources. There's a summary, and then I add my own little flair. I had to completely write this one from my sc- from scratch this time. So, okay. So that was the book, and then they made it into a movie. Like I said, 2022. Neil Jordan is the director, and the film stars Liam Neeson as Marlowe. There is also Diane Kruger, Jessica Lang, Alan Cumming, and my favorite, Colm Meany. Yay! Here's the recap. In 1939, Los Angeles private detective Philip Marlowe is hired by glamorous heiress Claire Cavendish to find her missing lover, Nico Peterson, a prop master at the Pacific Film Studios. Marlowe quickly learns that Peterson is dead, apparently having fallen down drunk before a car accidentally ran over and crushed his head like a pumpkin, like a pumpkin, like a pumpkin. They say it so many times. Outside, they also show it multiple times. <laughs> outside this exclusive luxury Corbata Club. This club only caters to the city's elite. Marlowe is refused entry and then gets into a fight with the gardeners when he tries to sneak in. His friend, homicide detective Joe, is not interested in reopening the case and encouraged Marlowe to accept Peterson's death. But instead, he visits Cavendish at her home and tells her about Peterson's demise. He also meets the studio's owner, Philip O'Reilly, the soon-to-be ambassador to England. Claire Cavendish reveals that she saw Peterson drive past her while in Tijuana after his supposed death. Annoyed by her withholding this information, Marlowe goes to leave, running into her mother, film star Dorothy Quinn Cannon, who fails to learn what service Marlowe is providing to her daughter. Marlowe visits Peterson's grave and encounters a mourning woman leaving him a note, but she escapes before he can talk to her. Marlowe convinces cop Joe to open a murder investigation now that they know that the body was not Nico Peterson's, and Joe admonishes Marlowe for his relentless pursuit of the truth and reveals that the body was identified at the Corbata Club by the owner, Floyd. Floyd Hansen, by the way. Marlowe meets with Hansen at the club. They both try to get information from one another, and they both fail. On his way out, Marlo notices the woman from Nico's grave. It's his sister, Lynn. He clandestinely agrees to meet with her at where she works, the Cabana Club, not to be confused, different club, later that evening. Their discussion is observed by Hanson. When Marlo gets there later, though, he's assaulted by two men. She's nowhere around, and that's okay. Marlo's a tough guy. He beats them unconscious. Quinn Cannon... Claire's mother, meets Marlowe and unsuccessfully tries to hire him away to find Nico for her instead. She reveals that her contentious relationship with her daughter is because she has spent many years pretending that Claire was her niece on the advice of O'Reilly, her former lover. Quinn Cannon's former private investigator had learned that Nico was also acting as a talent agent for actress Amanda. (sighs) Marlowe goes and visits Amanda. He finds out that Nico was a serial womanizer and regularly imported cocaine from Tijuana. Out of Leeds, Marlowe breaks into Nico's house and he encounters Lynn before the pair are attacked by the two Mexican men looking for someone named Serena. Yes, that's a brand new name. Marlowe's knocked unconscious. Lynn is taken captive. Upon waking, Marlowe is taken to the drug lord Lou Hendricks with his henchman, Cedric. Hendricks reveals that he is also after Nico, his former drug courier, 
because Nico stole a large amount of cocaine and the Carvada helped fake the Nico's death. Marlo has his officer friend, Bernie, a different cop, begin searching for Lynn and Claire visits Marlo to seduce him, but he rejects her advances. They share a dance and then she leaves. Marlo secretly follows her to a rendezvous with O'Reilly and runs into Quincanen, who shares her anger at her daughter's relationship with the much older and more powerful O'Reilly, a.k.a. the soon-to-be ambassador to England. Okay. The following day, Bernie takes Marlo to Lynn's discovered body, revealing that she was tortured and raped before being killed. Bernie traces the Mexicans to the Corbata Club and gives Marlo his unofficial support to infiltrate the club and avenge Lynn. Marlo confronts Hansen, who offers him a drink. But Marlo is suspicious, and so he does not drink it. And then he pretends that he has been drugged and is dying. Convinced that he is drugged, dying, or or dead, Hansen has his men take Marlo through the hedonistic areas of the club to a secret area where the Mexicans have been killed. Drug Lord Hendricks is also being tortured here, and Cedric has been restrained. But Marlo can free Cedric, and the two of them plan to come in and rescue Hendricks. As he's being tortured, Hendricks reveals that Serena is actually the mermaid statue that Nico placed in the adjacent fish tank. It contains the missing cocaine. So Marlo and Cedric burst in, kill Hansen and his men, inadvertently destroying the mermaid and the drugs. Cedric also kills Hendricks after being told that he will be indebted for years to pay the value of the drugs. Cedric decides to work with Marlo so that they can look out for each other. Marlo returns home to find Nico Peterson waiting for him. Nico admits he does not feel guilty about Lynn's death because of her association with him. She was only a half-sister after all. Then he asks Marlo to tell Claire to meet him at the studio prop house for information that he has gathered about O'Reilly. You know, that ambassador guy. The fake Nico, by the way, was a musician who resembled Nico and was a heroin addict. Okay, well, that's a loose end that's now been clipped. So Nico meets Claire and reveals his extensive records of every drug deal performed through the prop house with Hendrix. He believes that this will destroy the reputation of the studio and O'Reilly. As Marlo arrives, Claire betrays Nico. She shoots him and sets both him and the evidence on fire. Apparently, she's going to use this deed to earn favor with O'Reilly. She's been working with him all along. She wants to become vice president of the studio. Yay, that's the happy ending. Claire gets what she wants. Everybody's dead or taken care of. She offers Marlo a job as the studio's head of security. He declines, but he does recommend Cedric. Then he gives Cedric the gun that Claire used to shoot Nico so Cedric can continue to blackmail her because that is how it works. Blackmail, blackmail, blackmail. The end! Yay. Yeah. One of the most common criticisms of Raymond Chandler's writing is that his novels were circuitous and wandering. He usually assembled them from short stories he'd written and then basically patched them together to make them function as a single novel. And I will say that the author of this novel definitely took that approach. He took that to heart for sure. Yeah, the novel is absolutely a wandering story. Yeah. I okay, so here's a couple things about this novel. It it acts like it's going to be a standalone novel, but it's not because no. there's like this all this stuff that happens and it it's you really feel like you're missing something, especially when the briefcase shows up. He's like, "Oh, I have recognized that briefcase." And I'm like, "Great, great, great." 
but I don't because yeah. it has not been in this book. And I, the, the Terry stuff kind of worked because sometimes authors will do that. They'll kind of like drop little, you know, breadcrumbs early on and then down the road, it'll all kind of come back together. But this one really felt like it wasn't just referencing something that then we kind of could put together. There had to be an exposition dump at a couple different points and the expedition dump, the exposition dump got a little repetitive mm-hmm. and, and we got a little bit more and more every time, but Marlowe obviously had all the information to start with. I, mm, I don't know. It kind of goes into that thing. I think we talked about when we did um, that Perot novel, when we did the, the death on the Nile novel, we, we talked about this, like, is it the mystery that you're supposed to be able to figure out along with the main character? Or is it something that that they figure out and you just get to watch and be entertained by watching them figure out? And this book definitely falls into that category. There was no possible way that the reader could have figured all of this out, I don't think. Right. So the this genre is not really about the mystery. You're not supposed to figure it out. You're along for the ride as the detective figures out. And a lot of novels in this genre don't even have mysteries. Uh, One of the best examples is a Dashiell Hammett novel called Red Harvest. It's got like a little bit of mystery at one point, but overall the book's mostly about the detective setting rival gangs against each other. The idea isn't that you're playing a game with the author like you do with Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle, where you see if you can figure it out before they make their big reveal. Uh, this genre tends to be more about exploring the world and getting to know the characters that inhabit that world. And when it's done well, which Raymond Chandler tended to do and Dashiell Hammett tended to do, it can be a very rewarding thing to read. When it's done poorly, it can just be very frustrating. I'll say I don't think this one was done particularly poorly but it was also not one of the better examples. Mm, Yes. I personally found, I mean, the world was interesting enough, but I didn't really feel like we were getting too much of the world. We were just getting a lot of Mm. Marlowe drinking, smoking, laying around, washing his face, drinking, sleeping, sitting around, thinking about things. The phone would ring. I just, it felt very meandering and, Mm frustrating and it definitely slogged in the middle and then towards the end i was like oh my goodness this is which i i think is part part of the point because detective work isn't all flashy right that was definitely the thing here he spent a lot of his whole paragraph about how being patient is a is a good thing it's a virtue in in his line of work but i am an impatient person (laughs) and i was frustrated so uh, i'm I'm gonna say and i know that I'm not going to skip to the end of the episode, but I will say, because it's going to sound from the way I described this, what from what I have to say about this book, it's going to sound like I hated it. I did not hate this book. I'm glad I read it. I actually enjoyed reading it, but it's not, this is not Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. And that's true, not just in the case of the character, but also the world. It, it, you know, it's funny the day after we I finished reading the book, we went and saw the fifth Indiana Jones movie. And there's a very similar thing where the fact that it's written and directed by different people than every other one made it feel different. And there's a similar thing going on in this book. 
like one thing that jumps out right away is there's two police officers we end up spending a lot of time with in this book, uh, Bernie Owls and Joe Green. And they both show up in other Marlowe novels. They're uh, not strangers to somebody who reads these books. And they are treated as decent police officers who do try to get their job done in the other books. But in every other Marlowe, or should, in every Raymond Chandler novel, the cops are by and large pretty corrupt. People like Bernie Owls and Joe Green stand out because they're not corrupt. You know, mm. they're really unusual. The system itself is corrupt. And that's a big point of those novels. So it was kind of strange that we spend time with basically two police officers. And while they make reference to the fact that they might be chased off of doing their job by the higher ups, that never seems to dissuade them. So that felt not quite in keeping with Raymond Chandler's writing. Well, and one of the cops, Bernie, man, I mean, he really had some anger issues towards Marlowe, which... That, that's a genre convention, though. I Well, I mean, okay, that's that's cool. It got repetitive. It just, yeah. but they seemed to have the same conversation four different times where he would be like, I don't like you. And Marlowe would be like, yeah, well, I blah, blah, blah. Wow, well, I don't like you. And then they just kind of went round and round. And I was, I felt padded to me that... So that the bernie character in in one of raymond chandler's novels uh farewell my lovely there's a police officer and this guy is incompetent uh or lazy it's not really clear which maybe both but he shows up multiple times and he and marlo have essentially the same conversation each time except each time something happens that provides marlo information that he needs Whereas in this one, it felt like, yeah, they were just kind of showing up to have the conversation to have the conversation. There wasn't much going on that propelled the plot forward. Yeah. Uh, the other things that really struck me in reading this is the character of Marlowe fell off. I mean, for one thing, there are femme fatale characters in some, but not all of Chandler's novels, but they're frequently not the character you think they are initially. If a woman shows up and you've got her pegged as the femme fatale, no, she's going to actually end up being a pretty decent person. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't matter what her status is or what's going on. If if the whoever you think is the femme fatale at the beginning is actually going to be somebody who is good and is helpful. That was not the case here. The, femme, the person you had pegged as the femme fatale at the beginning was the femme fatale. No question. The other thing is in Chandler novels, Marlowe never falls for the femme fatale, but he never falls for her, not because he's too clever, but because he's just so untrusting and so unwilling to make himself vulnerable. It's basically his character defects protect him. Interesting. Uh, but it's also made clear that those same character defects are part of what prevents him from actually ever being happy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very much a double-edged sword in Chandler's novels. In this one, Marlowe falls hook, line, and sinker for the femme fatale, who is clearly the femme fatale. So it felt to a degree like this author was writing to a generic private eye novel formula and not to what Raymond Chandler would have written. Yeah, the sex uh, surprised me when 
when she shows up and she's like, let's go lay down on a bed. Is there a bed here where we could just lay down together? And then they like go off and they have sex and, and it's like very meaningful to Marlo. And I was like, this just feels strange to me. Right. The other thing that felt off about this is that it is when you get down to it. And the thing with the briefcase, you point out, if I had read The Long Goodbye a year or two before I read this, I would have picked up on that. As it is, I read The Long Goodbye 10 years ago, so I didn't pick up on that. Mm-hmm. This is a direct sequel to another Marlowe novel, The Long Goodbye. And direct sequels are not something Chandler really did. So it's a little weird that this author decided to do this. But it should be said, this is not the first time that an author who has been authorized by the Chandler estate to write a Philip Marlowe novel and then written a direct sequel. I have not read the other one, but there's one called Perchance to Dream, which is a sequel to The Big Sleep, although specifically to the film adaptation of The Big Sleep. Interesting. And it's I've not read it. It's generally considered pretty terrible. This one was actually a decent novel, so I'll give them that. But, you know, in the film, they got rid of everything that made it a sequel. And the story that there were some loose ends that the story had as a result, but it mostly worked. So clearly it didn't need to be a sequel. I don't know why the author did that. Right. So. (laughs) Because I was trying to figure it out when he was like at one point towards the end, he's like, get him there, you know, and obviously Marlo knows who the him is. And this is going to be like the linchpin thing. I'm like, okay, let me try to like make my own guess. And I was wrong. Okay. Because I did not think that this Terry character from some other book was going to show up. I was like, if we only work with the characters who we've been introduced to, it's got to be the brother. I figured that Claire and her brother had kind of maybe an illicit incestuous relationship. That was my thought. Or maybe there was like a love triangle between the brother and Nico. So she wasn't with Nico, but the brother was with Nico and like, she didn't like it or she was jealous. Like there was some kind of relation, like that was the thing. And that would have been much more interesting. Well, that's why she was looking for Nico. She didn't want her brother to be like, uh, you know, her brother's former lover, but she also needed to know. And she knew that Nico was involved with the drugs and, and yada, yada, yada. So I was like, pretty sure that that was where we were going to go. And then we totally didn't do that, but it could have worked because you could have yeah. still had Rhett come in. And like, if you'd had that Nico at the end, Nico and Rhett and Claire and, and Rhett killed Nico and, and what have you, like it could have all still worked together. I don't know if I was think... going to rewrite this, if I put my writer's cap on Nico would definitely not be off, you know, in South America being a gigolo, <laughs> he would have gotten his comeuppance. Yeah. That, that would have been a much more interesting book. I think. Indeed. One other thing that really struck me as interesting in reading this, and this isn't necessarily, well, it ended up being a bad thing, but it didn't have to be, is that the author is writing this in 2014 with 2014 attitudes. There's a lot of, you know, people will often accuse Chandler of a lot of casual racism and casual um, misogyny and homophobia. And that's fair. It's a little more complicated than that, but it is there. Because he was writing in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, whereas this author, you know, was writing in 2014. So early on, there's a sequence in a bar 
where they've got a sign that uh, basically says we don't want any homosexuals and marlo ends up thinking i suspect this is actually a big gay hangout and they put the sign there just to you know make it look like it's not and i think the bartender might be gay and that actually makes me kind of like the guy so okay you're updating the attitudes you're trying to make marlo a little more sympathetic but then later in the book there's various points where it's like oh right this takes place the book takes place in the 1950s the film in the 1930s was like right i have to insert some racism so he just starts inserting racism at almost random points and it's like either you're gonna make marlo more sympathetic to a modern reader or you're not, please make up your mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't really bump on the the words and the and the racism because I you're kind of in that time and you're in that place. So mm-hmm. I think it would have been more surprising if there hadn't been any. Yeah. I definitely bumped on those things more in the movie, but we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, the book I I you know I see what you're saying, but either way I I was like, okay, I was very confused why he went to a bar with that sign. And then when he was like, I think the bartender's gay, but he didn't seem to like, you know, he seemed cool with it. And I thought, well, that maybe Marlo's more progressive than I remember him being from the one other book that I read. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And then the Mexican henchman bugged me because, you know, yes, there is racism in Chandler's books but it's more complicated. You don't have a pure, a character who's purely bad because they're from Mexico. Whereas yeah. in this book, it felt like they were purely bad because they're from Mexico is kind of the way it came across. Right. And then, I mean, you're, you can answer this, but it wasn't just that they were, you know, basically the henchmen guys who were sent up here to get information and they took Lynn off and tried to get information from her and maybe torture. But like, to add in the torture, the rape, and the murder, it seemed excessive. Is that typical of a... Not of Chandler. You get somebody like, say, uh, Mickey Spillane, who wrote the Mike Hammer novels. Mike Hammer's a sociopath, and this sort of stuff's common in Mike Hammer, mm-hmm. which is why I don't like Mike Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that did surprise me. And listeners, you should know... Matthew read this book before I did, and he he said, I, I want to make sure you know that uh, there's a woman who dies and then is, is brutalized before. Just there's your trigger warning. And it was very sweet. But because he had warned me, I was not only ready for somebody to die horribly and brutally, but I, for some reason, thought we were going to like be present for it. And it the whole thing happens off screen. It is. Yeah. It's not it's not overly graphic or anything like that. So. Anyway, but I mean that the thing that really struck out to me, and I I wonder what you think since you're not somebody who's read a lot of Chandler's books. Throughout the book, I just kept bumping on the things, or it's like that's clearly not what would happen in a Chandler book, kind of stuff. But you, since you haven't read much of his writing, I don't know that you would have had the same experience. What did you think? I mean, I don't think there was ever a moment when I said that's not how Chandler would have written because I don't have that, you know background right there were definitely moments where i was like this is the weird contrivance or oh my goodness i suppose something needs to happen oh yes here's time for another plot point because otherwise there would be no plot here you know it felt very contrived Mm -hmm. 
Which that is kind of how Chandler writes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so because you're not familiar with Chandler's writing, you didn't know kind of how to go with the flow of it. But at the same time, you didn't have the constant, wait, that's not right feeling that I did. So yeah, And a lot of it was repetitive, not just the, the, the conversation with Bernie, but and, okay, when an author goes out of their way to draw your attention to something over and over and over again, usually it has it means something so in this case we hear a lot about the weather specifically we hear a lot about the heat and every time marlo parks his car then he comes back to his oldsmobile and the sun is beating in on the windshield and the steering wheel is going to be hot sometimes he has to open the doors and wait for the car to cool off sometimes he's in a hurry and he just drives blah blah but my god the amount of times we talked about the heat in the car, it just, and I was like, at some point this has to matter. Something's going to be in the car that's going to melt or, you know, the car will be moved and he won't remember moving it because somebody else moved his car. And that's how he'll know that somebody else like was in his car and like stole something important or he'll have a burn on his hand from the steering wheel. And then like there'll be something that'll happen and the police will say, Oh, that burn on your hand matches this crime scene. Like it has to matter. No, no, it doesn't matter. Nothing ever came of it. It was literally just there in practically every chapter, I guess to set the mood. Okay. It's hot. We get it. I just mm, stuff like that bugs me. And I don't know if that's a Chandler thing that this author is, is, you know, referencing. Is it? Or if it's yeah. just ugh. now, now with Chandler, it usually means something. It's not always the weather. It could be something else that's commented on, but it has something to do with the themes of the story. Um, there's a really famous Chandler short story called the red wind about the Santa Ana winds or the devil winds. Basically it's about a murder. I, I'm sorry. You mean the Santa Ana winds? winds. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <Okay>. Anyway. <laughs> But the fact that the winds are blowing, you know, in, people in Los Angeles have kind of a superstition about that. And it helps to set the scene and make the story a little more eerie and creepy than it would be otherwise. So that's the sort of thing that Chandler would do. I think this author was doing that because, oh, well, Chandler always comments on something about the environment. You know, it could be the weather. It could be, you know the number of people who are crowded around in a given area of town, whatever it is. Therefore, I need to do that without quite grasping why Chandler did it, yeah. which is odd because this author is primarily known for very well-reviewed literary fiction. So you'd think if anybody would get this. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of surprising. Yeah. So stuff like that bugged me. And then, you know, like you get, the conversation with the starlet or whatever and you're like okay maybe there's going to be a red herring or maybe we're going to be like sent on a wild goose chase but that's what those are the plot things that are happening but the description of the author the author's making a choice to tell us in exhaustive detail about things Mm -hmm. um and i guess maybe the situation was just too hot to handle (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh you know that might actually be what he was going for but it's not how it came across uh and that's pretty weak sauce is what that is that so, is i don't know i mean okay so there is an element that worked though at one point so because okay marlo's renting a house it's not his house he's renting it from an old lady who doesn't live there anymore and she's whatever so it's like none of the stuff in the house is his stuff right mm-hmm. okay which is fine there's not a lot of descriptions of the stuff in the house but 
one thing that's in the house is a lamp that's by his bed and it has roses on it and it's just that's not really a Marlowe thing that's not a that's just no that's not a private dick rough and tumble boozy dude lamp with roses but it didn't seem to really bother him or or occur to him that this maybe was not quite the right vibe for his bedroom until he slept with Claire and then suddenly like laying there like seeing the roses and then like being wrapped up in this afterglow thing and then after claire wasn't there he was still looking at her but then the roses were kind of more like drippy goo looking shadows like they didn't really look like roses anymore because um the bloom is off the rose at this point with their relationship like there's there's some stuff there and then at the end he takes the lamp and he throws it away (laughs) and you know okay so like it was it was was good that that was there and you could see okay so the lamp was obviously symbolic and we have some stuff going on but the car being hot just didn't work so again i don't know the the book had some good things but it also had some things that just made me kind of scratch my head yeah so should we talk about the film oh boy i got a feeling this film's going to be a lot more fun to talk about than it was to watch you guys it was not very fun to watch it really wasn't okay there are there are a lot of changes mm-hmm. and i have a little list here it's only part of them and i'll say i don't think all of the changes were bad some no. of them I actually thought were quite good okay unfortunately so, the filmmaking was bad well then let's talk about the film first and then we can talk about the changes. so like some broad strokes about the film i felt that the dialogue was stilted and awkward i yep. couldn't tell if that was bad writing or bad acting or bad editing or three things together but it was bad it did not feel natural it felt it it felt like these people were trying to talk in a way that you imagine books are written but that's not really how the books are written and that's not at all how people talk and then they cursed like they said the f word like five or six times at least which felt very jarring for the the time period because and and for the characters i know that there's cursing in marlo's book but it's always like when the f word is there it's like the little asterisks and usually it's like slang and and stuff it's not the f word like it was surprising to me and it and a lot of the 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 verbiage just felt off it felt off the dialogue was probably one of the worst parts about the movie which was yeah frustrating the uh the the swearing didn't bother me but a lot of the dialogue it just it felt wrong and i know i commented to you on this while we were watching it but i kept feeling like parts of scenes that were important were left on the editing room floor because like we're going to have a conversation and now we're going to be at this stage of our interaction with each other between where you started the conversation, where you are now, there's there's a few different ways to get there, and we didn't see any of them. We just saw you jump from one to the other. What yeah. the hell happened? <laughs> and I feel like they were trying, because in the book, similar things would happen where he would ask her a point blade, point question, just point mm-hmm. blank, and she would do a non sequitur and then he'd get distracted and like they would talk about that for a little bit and then he'd like ask a question and she'd change the topic like change the subject again and so i think maybe they were trying to go for that but it didn't 
it didn't work, work because we didn't have his internal monologue going, ah, she's dodging my question, you know, or whatever. And because the camera would move. So it felt like we were now at a different place, like you're saying mm-hmm. in the conversation. So yeah, I agree with you. And and also people were like, things happened kind of off screen. There, there's a whole thing in the book where she doesn't actually pay him. He doesn't right. get his retainer or his contract because he's so besotted at their first meeting that he just forgets. And then it never, you know, comes up and like she never ends up paying him in the movie. They make a point. He makes a point of saying that she paid him. He's been paid. Um, but that whole part of their conversation is just not there. They She comes in. They have a conversation. He walks her to the elevator. They don't talk money. They don't talk contract. But then later it's referenced that she paid him. So clearly there was stuff that we just weren't seeing and then that makes the filmmakers an unreliable narrator speaking of being the unreliable narrator filmmakers most of the movie is from marlo's point of view he's in all the scenes except Except one for the flashbacks well no no not just the flashbacks because that makes sense because they're telling him so like we're getting a visual it's Mm -hmm. like what he's imagining okay great but in the very end in the climax he he's nico says can you tell claire to meet me at this place at 7 30 and he goes okay so then he goes to claire and he says meet nico at the place at 7 30 and she's like cool cool mm-hmm. then we've got him driving with cedric in the car they're on their way by the way clearly it's not summertime in la because it is full-on dark and it's not quite 7 30 which is another change that may or may not doesn't matter it doesn't matter but it, i did notice it okay whatever so they're driving in the dark then the camera switches and we see claire and nico They have a whole conversation. We understand what the deal is. We understand what's going on as the audience. Things have now been explained. And then Marlo walks in like he wasn't there. He he, we literally see him opening the door and coming into the prop house. So there's no way that he could have heard that conversation. He wasn't there for it. Mm -hmm. And it just like, but. But why? Why are we seeing that? We shouldn't have been seeing it. I Things and like it, that drives me absolutely up a freaking wall. <laughs> I'll tell you, in a better movie, we wouldn't have noticed. I, maybe. I mean, well, all they had to do was edit him walking in and then have them do their scene so that we understand that he's like lurking down there and mm-hmm. listening. But they didn't do that. Right. The other thing is that they tried to convey a lot of information through various like flashbacks and they were very short, like one or two second long flashbacks. And the problem is that they often ended up causing more confusion than anything. Like there's the whole thing with La Serena. It's a mermaid sculpture that's got a bunch of either heroin or cocaine. We're not really sure which shoved in it. Early in the thing, they're describing Nico being this prop manager who would buy props and bring them to the studio. And then you see him putting this thing into a fish tank. So naturally, you're thinking that this has something to do with the movie because it's spliced in with a bunch of other short clips of him doing things that are clearly related to movies. Later on in the movie, we see that this uh, mermaid sculpture is actually in the club's fish tank. And See, here's the thing. If that had been done on, like, say, Breaking Bad, it would have been probably pretty good because they they did a lot of stuff like that on that show where you would get a clip of something out of context. And when the context finally came in, it made everything clear. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's what they're trying to do here with something like that. But instead of making everything clear, you're just sort of like, what the fuck? Why is it in that fish tank and not at the movie studio? You know, you're just kind of left scratching your head rather than, oh, that's what it was. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was that was not good. I they, I I agree. There were so many things like that scattered throughout the movie where we'd see a like real little clip or they'd make an awkward cut. I think maybe they were cutting the film the way they were to try to give it a sense of urgency and momentum, but instead it just made it confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could follow the broad strokes of the plot, but the little details were, well, don't think about those little details. Just follow the broad strokes of the plot. It's fine. It's fine. And I, I didn't like it. I also thought that the acting wasn't great. Which, which is unfortunate because this film had, you know, Liam Neeson, Jessica Lane, Diane Kruger, uh, Cole Media, people who we know are good actors. Yeah. And yet. And, and you know, it makes also and, things like the editing and the direction frustrating because this is an Academy Award winning, highly praised director. We know that all of these people can make a damn good movie. They just didn't. Yeah. And and I don't know if part of the problem was like COVID related, like maybe they were making it during the shutdown and they had to do a lot. It felt to me like there was some ADR issues. Um, People's voices sounded like they were echoing on a soundstage when they were supposed to be outside, but it clearly their voices were echoey. And so to me, it just kind of felt kind of slapped together. Like they had this Mm -hmm. idea, we're going to make this movie. We've got a good cast, but we're running out of time or money or something. And we just need to get it finished so we can get it released or something. And, and it's very disappointing because it could have been, it could have been good. Also, I think the casting was off. I'm sorry. Like, I think that our Claire in this movie, Claire Cavendish is not a, is, is not, She's not the Claire from the book for any means. And she felt like right. a discount um, Kim Basinger from L.A. Confidential. I kept thinking Kim Basinger did this so much better. Uh, and so and then Liam Neeson is Liam Neeson. He can't mm-hmm. not be Liam Neeson. And he didn't feel quite right as Marlo. And I know you have opinions on why. But to me, he just he was just an old Liam Neeson. And I I every time he was on the phone, I kept expecting him to say, well, I've got a very special set of skills. Like I just, it, yeah. And the accent, his accent was a little weird too. I'm. No. There were several Irish, British, and German actors trying to do American accents with varying degrees of ability. And ironically, Jessica Lange was playing an Irish character. She's an American actress, so you had an American actress trying to do an Irish accent. And a whole bunch of Irish actors trying to do American accents, and none of them sounded quite right. Yeah, I yeah uh, yeah. So tell us tell because we we almost started talking about this because we do live together, and then we were like, no no, save it for the podcast, save it for the podcast. But one of the the changes I think that they made because it was Liam Neeson, and that is that Marlo is more capable and much more of a bruiser and like able to handle himself in a fight specifically the scene where he goes to meet with Lynn and there's the two guys the thugs in the room and he beats them up and like breaks a table or a chair or something over one of them tell us your thoughts Matthew yeah so one of the reasons so the hard-boiled detective characters they're tough guys 
but they're tough in that they can take a lot of punishment. And this is especially true of Philip Marlowe. He's very fallible. He gets beat up a lot. He gets drugged a lot. Bad things happen to him all the time. Um, he's the way they show he's tough is that he keeps, you know, getting up, dusting himself off. And no matter how much pain he's in, he keeps going. Um, this is very different than a modern action hero character. And in this film, they really tried to turn him into a modern action hero. You know, when he runs into the two thugs at um, Nico Peterson's house, he gets a good shot in on one before the other one comes up at him from behind. Yeah, in it's much book, more of a fight, much more yeah. of a fight in, in the book. No, he gets taken down. I, Marlowe in the Raymond Chandler novels. And I will say in this book was he could fight. He was tough enough that he could throw punches if he needed to. But if he got ganged up on, he was going down, and that's just all there was to it. Um, the Liam Neeson attempt at Marlowe, you know, he's too smart to get drugged. He's too capable to get beat up. He, you know, he and really is played as an action hero. Freaking seventy years old, which you know, right. it, it 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 bends a little credulity here that the seventy year old guy is gonna do as well i yeah yeah well, but, and know, i feel like that change to make him tougher was because it was liam neeson playing it that's what i feel I, like I, I think you're probably correct and the funny thing is like yeah i brought up earlier that in a way the book gave me a similar vibe to watching the fifth indiana jones movie but this is also a like a telling difference in how you can have these types of characters because you know, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones gets the crap beat out of him. And in this most recent movie, he's older and he's dealing with the fact that he's older. Whereas here you've got a 70-year-old Liam Neeson as Philip Marlowe, who's playing him as if you know the actor was in his 30s. Yeah. He, he uh, definitely Yeah. And because I mean, not to just derail here, but they changed the time. The movie is yeah. set in 1939. The book was in the 50s. So he's supposed to be a younger Philip Marlowe. <laughs> like right. In, in the book, they comment on him getting older and Philip Marlowe actually talks about aging, but it's pretty clear that he's not that old. You know, he's probably in his forties. Yeah. yeah he, he's going through the stuff you and I are going through. Hey now, um, <laughs> shut your whore mouth. <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, but he's he's middle-aged in the book you, it, they never mm -hmm. flat out say that but you get that impression he's probably in his 40s and he's beginning to physically not be as good as he used to be uh in all of the other novels he's in his 30s so yeah to have an actor who's 70 playing him just felt bizarre playing him in 1939 yeah playing him in 1939 uh, they also add stuff in like, oh, yes, you were in you were in the war, this case being World War One, and you saw action in these places. Again, that's not in keeping with this character, but it does add to the action hero aspect of him. Yeah, it is interesting. Which they did the similar thing to. Uh, yeah, in Death on the Nile, I was just yeah. thinking that in Poirot, they gave him a, a, a backstory, more of a backstory about his time in the war. A former soldier. Apparently, we like former soldiers, I guess. We understand why they would be brutal and uh, and and tough guys. Like it's an excuse, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a way in. 
which again you know a lot of the although this genre began in the 20s it really carried on into the well into the 50s and early 60s and a lot of the characters that were generated in the late 40s through the early 60s were world war ii vets because most men in the u.s at that time were world war ii vets so it wasn't a way of making them tough it was just yeah this is what you are if you happen to be a man in this time period right whereas here it felt like making him tough and and i mean going on with the age difference because he's so much older they did reference it a couple times because claire is half his age in the Mm -hmm. book you know she's definitely younger than him but not significantly younger than him it's not a daddy there was like this girl had daddy issues and she had mommy issues and daddy issues for sure and it it yeah it's just good that they didn't sleep together like on the one hand i get that it that might have actually kept him closer to being like the real philip marlowe character the lack of sex but also it it was gonna get real uncomfy i was i got real nervous (laughs) i'm really glad they didn't sleep together in the movie yeah well and also the the power um, dynamic it's not an age thing specifically it's more the power thing and that you know we know that she's using him and uh like but again that actually makes it seem like oh well he's just too smart to get taken in he's too smart to get this or that right. or the other thing because so, he's the action hero he, even he's not... though i liked it it doesn't actually work as well for his character because it almost diminishes everything because of course he's mm. not going to sleep with her right yeah. and in this case he doesn't because he is too clever and too smart yeah he not knows. because he's a damaged person who keeps people at right. a distance you know Right. And and he never, you know, trusted her and whatever. But then also in the movie, he liked her, of course, you know, kind of, but he was not in love with her. He was not besotted with her. He wasn't Mm -hmm. completely infatuated. And even though she's supposed to be a beautiful woman, there are ways to shoot (laughs) close ups of women in movies that tell you this woman is the most beautiful thing in the world. And they didn't do that in this movie. Mm-hmm. It wasn't overly male gazy. There was no long pans up her legs, no coquettish look from behind her hat or fan or, you know, through her eyelashes or anything like that. She was beautiful, but she was not, you know what I mean? Like he wasn't yeah. obsessed with her. So yeah. And on the one hand, that changes from the book, but on the other hand, it makes it because he's, like you said, this action hero who's not going to be taken in. So right, your mileage will vary on whether or not you liked that. You know, one thing that hit me as I was reading the book is that even though it was a direct sequel to uh, The Long Goodbye, it was also a rehash of The Big Sleep. Hmm. You know, instead of the, you know, wealthy father who's got his, you know, who's trying to interfere with the investigation that you have in the big sleep, it's the wealthy mother. Uh huh. And they combine the two sisters from the big sleep into one character of the black eyed blonde, Claire Cavendish. But I mean, the plot was in many ways very, very similar to the big sleep, even to the point that at the end, the kind of mystery element that up to that point, Marlowe hadn't actually cared that much about. Now he feels the need to solve. It ends up being very different than what you had in the big sleep in many ways, but there's still a lot of parallels. So, and I got to say, that's another thing about the novel that really hit me. It felt like there were a lot of callbacks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know I'm going back to the novel. That's okay. There were a lot of callbacks to Chandler's books, but they were callbacks that were of a sort that didn't seem to 
bit. Like uh, at one point, one of the police officers makes a reference to Marlowe's nickname being Doghouse Riley. In The Big Sleep, he tells the character that's his name because he's just trying to get the character to shut up and go away. Um, there were other details that came up like that where I just found myself thinking, it feels like they're throwing in the little Easter eggs for the fandom. But mm-hmm. the thing is, these books don't have a fandom the way that Star <laughs> Wars does. Right. You know, the people who like these books aren't going to care about things like that. We want you to tell us an interesting story about a character that we like spending time with in a scuzzy world. You know, we we don't care that you were clever enough to make a winking reference at a past (laughs) book because why would you do that? That's just distracting. (laughs) Well, speaking of that world, the world of the movie was much more about the Hollywood part of mm-hmm. LA, the studio, and then the big wig at the studio who's going to become the ambassador to England, which I, 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 I gotta tell you, a guy who runs a film studio who then becomes an ambassador to that seems very weird and awkward to me, but I don't know anything about ambassadors. So maybe that's like a legitimate career path and a normal trajectory for a person. But it just the 1930s were a hell of a drug. I guess so. It was that was weird. Okay. Anyways, but yes, it is much more studio glamorous, Hollywood, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas the book was much more the CD part of LA and yes there's the rich people but it's it's a class thing there's the haves the have nots Mm -hmm. and that's what it is and so and partly I think it's because it's of the time it's in the 50s versus you know 1939 but I I that made a big difference and it actually kind of worked as a change for the movie because you know when you think of LA and you think of that time like the studio things it's easy to have oh the studio heads the bad guy and like of course and like and using the stuff the movie stuff as because it's all artifice as like this backdrop of the artifice of somebody asking for help but you know not really needing in the way that they're presenting and like everybody's acting and everybody's a liar and like you know the masks that we wear and like all of that stuff works really well for a noir and for a mystery and and for a detective novel it it works really really well it was Mm -hmm. just a very big change and in fact, in one of the Philip Marlowe novels called The Little Sister, it worked great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it didn't work in this movie, even though it could have. It should have. And it yeah. just it just didn't. Another real big change was that Lynn was a total innocent in the movie. She was not part of the cover-up fake of the death of her brother, and it makes her death even more tragic well, and she sad. might have been but it's not clear you get yeah, the impression she, she genuinely thinks he's dead yeah she yeah she was visiting his great her his you know yeah what, the little box that held his ashes and uh yeah and they went they went out of their way to show you that like his head had been smashed like a pumpkin so like there was no way to to actually identify him based you know on anything else don't eat watermelon before watching this movie 
I did not believe, though. He was like, oh, it was just so convenient. This other guy looked like me, and he OD'd on the very night that I was deciding to, like, run away. <laughs> so I used his body, and I was like, no, you killed that man. You made that OD happen. It has to be. It, it was better developed in the book where you know that there's a lot of people at working at the club that if they go missing, nobody's going to miss them. I mean, he was a bad dude, and... So I guess it's okay that Claire killed him because he was a bad guy, even though he wasn't maybe as bad as he was in the book, but in the book, he gets to get away with it. So what's up with that? It's just, it's this very, a, a weird view of justice that Marlowe has for sure. Yeah. That bothers me. I, I will say one thing in the book that felt authentic to me and that I did really like is Marlo doesn't spend much time with Len, but he forms a very strong opinion of her and he wants to help her. And when he can no longer help her, he wants to get get the people who did that to her. That felt very authentic to the character. The idea that, you know, you might be somebody that other people are going to look down on, mm -hmm. but I kind of like you. And now somebody fucked with you. I'm going to take care of them. Yeah, that that's very true to the characters. That was actually something I like in the movie. It seemed more like, although that does raise the question of why did he stop to take a shower and do all that before calling the police? I was going to say, because that I definitely bumped on that in the book. He like yeah. woke up, drove away. Like, There's no pay phones. I know there are pay phones. That's like a big deal here in this time period. But no, no, no. Let's drive all the way. And, and, and in the book, I went back and read that again today. He considered going to his office, but he decided not to. So then he drove home. So then right. he did this and i was like oh my god and like we don't know if it would have made a difference but it felt pretty freaking shitty and then when he happened like the whole thing happened at the club and he was drugged and and he escaped mm -hmm. he literally the first thing he did was call the cops like right away yeah so we know he has the capability of calling the cops quickly right but in the movie he he immediately like his the first thing he did was go yeah. and 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 talk to the cops but yeah that i that i've really bumped on that in the in the book yeah the, like the fact that he waited so long to call the police just didn't make sense to me but you know you did get the impression that he was genuinely pissed off when he found out what had happened to her mm -hmm. and that he actually liked her you know yeah. and, it, and it wasn't a you know romantic or sexual thing it was like okay you're kind of a tough person in a bad spot i like you yeah and that and was it, very true to the character and he went to her funeral which was good yeah. which was nice one thing that they changed in the movie <laughs> well they added the bigger part for cedric the driver would have been bad except the actor they got was a lot of fun was, to watch so <laughs> slightly bigger role for the big vegas gangster hendrix who's mm -hmm. played by Alan Cumming. <laughs> and had, I think, the best line in the movie. He One of the had... few lines of dialogue that was actually... Well, Funny. actually, the line was terrible, but his delivery was so good. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's playing a bad guy, okay? Let's be very clear. He's a bad dude, and his racist attitudes are bad. But my goodness, he was, he was captivating. He was the only person in this movie where you were like, actively watching him because yeah. what he was doing was interesting and yes he got his comeuppance he was taken out again marlo's like oh that's straight up murder cool 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 mm -hmm. <laughs> like, 
What Which if? again, he's playing by action hero rules. Yes, yes. And they had to they they really leaned into his um Hendrix's racism and and badness so that when he did get shot by the guy he was being super racist and mean to, Cedric, like he were like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> because he deserved it because he's a jerk. But yeah, anyways, I'm uh, that was a good bit of casting right there. He was fun to watch and I yeah. haven't seen him yeah. since uh the good fight or the good wife. I haven't seen him since the good wife. So I was, I was happy to see him again. Yeah. A line that was about being made entirely out of spiders that was not really well written, but his delivery was great. And the line was hilarious as a result. Tarantulas all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> it um, was a good line. But yes, uh, he actually had a couple, he had a couple good lines. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> just the one that I really, I started laughing out loud. Well, he, he also, <laughs> He's very clearly gay and he makes some comment and then which oh. if you take it, you can really take it as a sexual euphemism and he just says, like, leave that line alone. Yes. Like whatever. Like he knows what he said and he knows what everybody thought the second he said it. I, I said, like, I make things grease and move. Leave that alone. No, it's like something yeah. in the back, or I don't even know what yeah, it was. It was like yeah, it was it was it was pretty funny. So anyway. Yeah, those were some highlights of the of the movie. Here's a low light of the movie. There's a random cutscene that just happens at one point where Marlo takes off his shoes and socks and walks in the ocean for like five seconds, and then and then we never mention it. There's no I reason think he I... was cleaning something. I think blood off of his hand, but yeah, it was it... one of those kind of odd. Why that? Why why, why? didn't he just go to a place with soap and water? I do not even understand. Also, there was a weird moment where. Marlo's lost his gun. The cop gives him another gun so that he can have a gun in case somebody shoots somebody with the gun that he lost, because obviously that won't be his gun, because look, he's got his gun right here in his pocket. Because <laughs> the cops are into that. And the cop goes, man, if they ever start writing serial numbers on these guns, we're going to be done for. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny, because obviously that's what they do now. But then at the very end of the movie, he freaking gives the gun that Claire used to shoot Nico to Cedric as blackmail. And I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> we we had this whole earlier scene where like, you can't prove that that's a, somebody's gun. So like, how good is that blackmail? Whatever. Yeah, they, we didn't really think it through. It's fine. Blackmail is not only bad, but it's the grease that makes Hollywood go. Apparently, right. just don't ask questions. The, the grease in the back. Yeah. There's another thing that really felt wrong in this movie is they had a Cole Meany, uh, who people might know as Chief O'Brien from Star Trek. Yes. Yep. That's my Star Trek trivia right there. He's from from Next Generation and from Voyager. And he even gets a shout out on Lower Decks because, you know, he must suffer. But he's also awesome. The Chief. This is the Kalia from the future who is editing this podcast and realizes that I said Voyager and I very clearly meant Deep Space Nine. It's just that I prefer Voyager over Deep Space Nine. You can come at me any way you want, willing to have this fight and die on this hill, but whatever. Love Voyager. And that's why I said Voyager. But obviously, Chief O'Brien was a very large role on Deep Space Nine. And please do not revoke my nerd card because I said my favorite show as opposed to the one that he actually was on. Thank you and good night. They also talked in some ways. This is kind of an interesting thing. It was not in the book, 
and I didn't quite understand what it was in the movie, but I feel like they were trying to say something. There was a couple different mentions of jurisdiction. Oh, that's county. This is city. There's the jurisdiction. There's like the sheriff's office. And I I get that there was some, there was like a turf and, and yada, yada. It wasn't really fleshed out enough. And I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be super important or just flavor of the world. I think it was introduced as flavor of the world in the book. It wasn't made as blatant, but it was important. You would call mm-hmm. the sheriff for one area and the police for another, and you would get them both working on the case, which is what right. Marlo did. And he kind of, to a degree, played them off of each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's what it, I mean, it's basically just like what we have right down the street from where we live. Where, yeah. depending on what side of the road you're on you might have to call the sheriff if you run into a drunk driver you might have to call the police or in in my case if you are hit by a car while standing walking in a crosswalk and you call 911 they ask you if the car was traveling north or south because that determines whether or not the city cops are going to come out and help you off the side of the road or if your call is going to get routed to the sheriff's office, which will actually get routed to the highway patrol, and you will sit there and wait for the highway patrol to come and scrape you off the side of the road. In which case, you just say, fuck it, and walk home on a busted ass knee. Actually, like I did. if I could correct you, they ask whether it was going north or south so that they can determine which police agency will decide it's the other police agency's problem, even though it's clearly in the jurisdiction of the agency you called yeah super fun by the way so anyways (laughs) la 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 that's that's the movie okay here's a quote that i liked liam neeson isn't necessarily a bad fit for this classic character but marlo fails to marlo the movie fails to make a case for itself as either a worthwhile franchise extension or a fun mystery in its own right agreed Mm -hmm. I also like this summation of the movie. It's both resolutely conservative in its period framing and irksomely postmodern in its audience pandering. (laughs) That's a pretty good description. So there you go. That's the movie. That's the book. Do you have any final or other things before we get to our little wrap up? No, I've said my piece. Okay. So Matthew, was this book and was this movie worth your time okay so i don't know that i would recommend this book to somebody who just is looking for a book to read but if you are somebody who's read chandler's books and you want to spend some more time with philip marlowe and you're okay with him feeling just a little bit off it's worth a read i enjoyed it i would recommend it to other people who like this genre um i will say that it does not deal thematically as well with the issues that you know a lot of that people like uh chandler and dashiell hammett and uh ross mcdonald dealt with unfortunately but it is a way to spend a little bit more time with a character that you may be attached to uh as for the movie i could actually highly recommend the movie in one circumstance and that's if you're trapped in space on a satellite with a couple of wisecracking robots otherwise don't bother i agree with your assessment of the book for sure it's not really my genre but it was 
fine. I think I would give it like a two or a two and a half star rating. It did what it was supposed to do. It just, it's not really for me. So maybe a three. I don't know. It it definitely told a, a noir story with some very classic femme fatale and some very classic, you know, uh, jargon and getting beat up and, you know, all of that stuff. So cool. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're into the genre, you're into Philip Marlowe, or you're just curious about uh, this pseudonym of Benjamin Black, you know, by all means, it's not a terribly slow read. It's pretty fast until it drags. But then I, I promise if you just skim along, you'll get to the end. I mean, we've kind of ruined the whole thing. We've told you who did it and how and why and where. But if you're interested, there's the book. As for the movie... I would just skip it. I just feel like it, it tried to do something, but I don't know if it even knew what it was doing. It could have been good. This could have been a beginning of a franchise, but I don't think you can do it with Liam Neeson. He's he's kind of old, unfortunately. I just don't think he can carry a Marlowe franchise, so I don't think this is the beginning of multiple Marlowe movies. And... I honestly, like I said before, I really feel like it was just slapped together and not done particularly well. L.A. Confidential is an amazing movie. Go watch that mm-hmm. one instead. Yeah. <laughs> if, either go old school and watch The Big Sleep or watch L.A. Confidential. Either way, you'll get the flavor. L.A. Confidential actually give you the flavor better. And L.A. Confidential is a damn good movie. Yes. And if you... uh haven't already go listen to our episode where we talk about la confidential because it was all it was a lot of fun and i liked that movie quite a bit so and it was very different from the book from what you uh said in that episode it sounds like it was different much for the better it was much better much better than the book for sure i will never get over i mean spoiler for a different episode but a character in the book la confidential who you are like rooting for and you love so much freaking just randomly dies like almost off screen in one of the most anticlimactic deaths ever and i'm i'm still salty about it so it was it people still died in the movie but it was handled way better you know i remember when you did that episode you got to a point where you were talking about walt disney being part of a sex and death cult I thought, well, that sounds like it could be interesting. And then you explained it further. I'm like, wow, they managed to take something that should be inherently interesting and make it dumb. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if you really want to listen to it, that is episode 26 is LA Confidential. And Matthew and I actually did talk about The Big Sleep in episode 57. So lots of past episodes of The Pages and Popcorn podcast for your listening pleasure you can find out more about pages and popcorn podcast on our website which is kmmamedia.com just click the pages and popcorn link you can also find out about the other exciting podcast that matthew does called ghost Thropology. there's a link right there too and matthew tell us real quick what is ghost Thropology and why should the people listen well ghost Thropology is a series in which i essentially overthink ghost stories, but but do so as an anthropologist. I look at what makes the ghost stories tick, why certain ghost stories become popular and stick around. And uh, occasionally I'll even talk about why some don't, even though they seem like they should. Um, It's rooted in social science and in uh, social criticism. So if that sounds like something that might be interesting to you, check it out. 
Uh, unfortunately, it has significantly fewer private eyes than the episodes of Pages and Popcorn I've been on. Yes, that is true. But it is definitely worth checking out if that sounds like something you're interested in. Also, KMMA Media Network also produces the It's a Queer Fang, T-H-A-N-G, podcast. That's me and Chris talking about LGBT politics, news, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we do interviews. We delve into things. It's a good time. It's a good time. And in every episode, I call him old and we talk about kickball because that's what we do. <laughs> and if you like hearing Kalia get salty, you got to hear Chris do it. <laughs> that's true. He's much saltier than I. Anyways, all of that can be found at KMMA Media. And you can also find us on Facebook, both Pages and Popcorn, all three, actually, Pages and Popcorn, It's a Queer Thing, and Ghost Anthropology all have Facebook accounts. And you can also find us, KMMA Media is on Instagram. So that is the end of that. And uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being here. Did you have a good time? Was this fun? I, I did indeed. Yes. <laughs> We were watching the movie and taking notes and it finished. And I was like, that sucked. <laughs> Matthew. Well, see, first we started watching it and we got about five minutes into it. And I was like, this movie is not a good movie. And he okay, goes, so oh, it might get better. But it did. Oh, not. it did not. It did not. So here's it got better than it was in the first five minutes. But slightly better crap is still crap it's true it is true I, yeah the thing they is, did have him taking a drink and standing with the blinds shoots you know showing the uh, shadows across his face within the first like 30 seconds of the movie so yeah, it in was... case you wondered whether or not you'd get your fill of cliches with this yeah. film yeah. i am the guy who actually thought wild wild west was kind of a fun movie i liked indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull I never talked badly about the Star Wars prequels. I'm easy to please. And I thought this movie sucked. Yeah. And I think it it just, I mean, not to be the dead horse, but it could have been good if it had just been done a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the frustrating thing is you could see how it could have been good. And yet they continued to make just the wrong choice. Indeed. Indeed. Highly disappointing. Okay, well, that about sums that up. So we hope you enjoyed this episode and we will talk to you all again in a month when we talk about a different movie based on book as well as the original source material. Goodbye. Bye. What's that? Say goodbye again like a normal person. <laughs> Bye like a normal person. This is the recap song. Kalia's gonna do the recap. This is the recap song. Sit right back and listen to her. Oh my god.